Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. Get rid of the bear market blues today. Listening to your boy, Tom Morgan, one of the more interesting humans I've ever met. I was fortunate to meet him in New York. I had a kick-ass dinner with him and a bunch of guys that I met on Twitter. Next time we'll get some females in the house. I don't know what to say about this interview except for I listened to it because I listened to my own shit. And I thought that this was a really great interview and I wish that the host had stayed a little bit more present on certain questions, but I think the host is doing his best. So I forgave him for some of it. Long story short, Tom's great. I think this is a fun episode to listen to. I hope you all like it. It is brought to you by Bastier Partners. Bastier Partners is a new breed of investment and merchant bank that specializes in primaries, secondaries, and co-investment opportunities in the private markets, catering to a unique coverage universe of 250-plus family offices, venture capitalists, and crossover hedge funds. While sector generalists, the firm specializes in fast-growing technology and technology-enabled businesses, advising companies on primary capital raises and creating liquidity events for founders and early investors via secondary transactions. The firm also advises fundless sponsors and GPs on co-investment opportunities. Bastier Partners was founded nearly a decade ago by Nader Afshar, a former senior investment banker at JP Morgan, and Bastier is headquartered in Los Angeles. Nader is also a friend of the pod and a great dude. Give him a call, check out the website, uh, tell your friends. Securities are offered through Hollister Associates, LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC. Bastier Partners and Hollister Associates, LLC are not affiliated companies. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Tom Morgan. Have a good weekend. Thrilled to be joined by Tom Morgan. How you doing, man? I'm doing tremendously. Thank you. Yeah. That's very, good. very grateful. Very, very grateful for you having me on. I've been a huge fan of the show since I first listened to the Arnold Vandenberg interview, I think last year. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to being catastrophically more disappointing than him. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's going to happen. We were talking about um, the evolution of the show. And some people have asked if I, if I still drink on the show. And some of the earlier episodes had a lot more editing than the than the later episodes have because I come in relatively sober now, uh, or completely sober. I've, I, you know what's tough about it is I want to do, like the idea was to have like a Rogany type show. I mean, I'd like to have it more informed than him, but um, the problem is once once you get like real guests that have real careers and people uh, are actually listening. Uh, kind of hard to get them drunk, you know, and uh, do all that. So it's gotten a little more G-rated, I think. I think the problem is, is that, you know, it's like the third beer game of pool philosophy, right? Where like on your third beer, you suddenly become good at pool, at least in my case, right? But you've got to hold it at exactly that level, right? Yeah. There's a certain level of inebriation where I think you're probably going to get more insightful. And then once you tip, you tip so hard. It's just basically you're just going to be like slurring and gobbling nonsense. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, to which you could just say, well, we'll scrap the episode. But um, yeah. but I don't know. Some people don't want to come on and be more insightful, right? Some people want the sales pitch, but I think <laughs> I tend to get people to open up. Yeah, I've not heard that. Yeah. We were talking right before we started, and I when I said, let's flip it on, you were talking about you have experts come in to the office, and a lot of people will lead with their opinion, but you like to have an expert accurately describe how the world is. Do you want to sort of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for listeners who, who don't know me, like I, I work um, running kind of content and being what I call a curiosity sherpa for a uh, 
a wealth manager called the KCP Group. And part of my like limitlessly fund mandate is to essentially just try and find the most interesting and insightful people in the world. And um, a big part of that is sort of knowing what you're looking for. And I, I spent, you know, not a huge amount of time, but sort of 15 or 16 years on Wall Street, basically just trying to find interesting people uh, who had like insightful stock calls. And you realize that in the, the post-social media age, it's trivially easy to have an opinion on something, right? And it's and it's actually easy to have something, an opinion on something before you've understood it. Like, I think, you know, Web3 is a scam or whatever. Like, you know, I think blockchain's nonsense. You know, like, right, you are absolutely entitled to your opinion, but you need to show me you're working, right? And the problem is, is at the moment, is that most people don't show you're working. So one of our philosophies is that, like, if we bring an expert in, You've got to paint us the reality on the ground as accurately as you can, and then give us your opinion. You know, like show us show us the mountainside, and then show us where you think the boulder is going to run down it. But it's very interesting how few people can do the first stage now, and that's it, it sounds trivial, but it's not. But reality has become so fabulously complex, and all these systems have become so interrelated that just in a markets context, knowing what indicators to watch. Is just like it, it is sort of almost half the game. Yeah, I think the other half is executing uh, a, a strategy. Right, it's easy to have a plan. The execution is what actually matters. Right, and knowing that you have the call when you have the call. Right, I mean, like I'll give you a tangible example. Like maybe the best, maybe the best call I've seen in my career was this guy from Gavkal, Dan Wang, who writes an annual letter every year that's super long and super involved. And the start of last year, he was like, you know, everyone spent their pandemic in their pants watching, you know, Netflix. And I basically read every piece of turgid Chinese propaganda I could get my hand on. And you know what? I think they're going to crush the internet industry. They're going to crush like the, the trivial business model innovation tech that is the cornerstone of the American markets, right? And and I was like, holy. And so we, we had a, a call with him, but it was sort of like, understanding the magnitude of what he was saying, because he was kind of like inadvertently ahead of $2 trillion of market cap destruction. If you looked at what the Chinese did to their tech industry after that, like it was just such a huge call. And I, and I don't think even we capitalized on it enough in being like, wow, this guy has done exactly what we look for, right? He's done, he, he's shown you a reality by having done more work than anyone else that appears to be true. And then he's showing you the propensity of the system, which is that guys are think this is going to end very badly if you're a Chinese tech company so it was just it was a masterful piece of work but like you know you only find one of those a few times I'll tell you the best call I saw last year was uh was Chris Bloomstrand um and I I think uh, a lot of energy fintwit made it too but he wrote a thread um following this weekend that he uh hosted and I think the thread somewhat misrepresented what was going on. And I think, uh, you know, it's somewhat captured, but certainly I can tell you what was said in that room in a big way was get long energy. Uh, and, you know, that was November. And what did I do about it? Nothing. So isn't that fun? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, that's a really interesting point because the Arnold Vandenberg interview you had so William Green, who's a wonderful guy, he interviewed him recently for his podcast. And it was just really funny for me because like you had you had Arnold Vandenberg on his podcast and he's a fascination to me in so many different ways, but, but predominantly because his entire focus is the harmonization of conscious and unconscious. And so he's sitting there basically saying to you, 
effectively, I've got such a strong character, I can't understand why these energy stocks are so cheap. And I've been underperforming for God knows how many years, but I just, I can't get away from that. And, you know, the, the borderline between stubbornness and insanity and actually having the strength of, of character in that situation is insane. But then listening to him go back and talk on Williams Green's podcast, where all these stocks are like, you know, up like several hundred percent, and he's absolutely roofed it. You're like, ah, oh, Jesus, right? Like, yeah. like he, and, and, and the thing that interests me most about that perspective is that today's market has never been more reflexive and intangible, right? All these companies are based on digital intangibles. Michael Murbison's written about it, right? Which just basically means that the floor is harder to tell than it ever has before. So when you're looking at like someone like Vandenberg, who appears, as far as I can tell, to be sort of universally well-regarded, it's basically down to the strength of your character. And I think it's what the two of us are talking about, which is that like, you know, when you've got it and when you can see it, having that amazing like will to just go all in which i certainly don't have i think one of my favorite parts of that episode is that he pitched commodities at pretty much the bottom and and even when people talk about the episode that part never comes up but i think it's you know it's so easy to get lost in his story as a person that uh i think people overlook who he is sometimes as an investor and I'm really glad that it worked out well for him because a guy like that deserves it. I I agree, man. I don't, you know, I don't know that I have um, something, something that I have been asking myself. uh, And I think the answer is just simply, I don't, I just don't know. I don't know if it's getting older. I don't know if it's where I am in life. Um, Maybe it's because I've been underperforming recently. Uh, But like, I just don't know that I have the care to work hard enough to outperform anymore. Like, I, you know, I met a bunch of people. Uh, I actually just talked about this with, with William Green, which comes out, I think, next week. Uh, this will be the following. But, like, you know, I, I meet these guys, and I'm just like, you you want it more than I do. I mean, just flat out. So I, I think the answer for me is to, I know what I own. I'm sure I could do um, – a little bit. Well, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if working any harder would help me do better over the next couple of years. But I think it's just like keeping the position on, believing in the research, looking for things that change and just, uh, you know, keep my head down, try to try to execute the plan. But I think that is wildly consistent with what he says, right? Like, like, like there's almost like this, you know, this, this, this Taoist paradox to it, which is like, if you set out with the explicit goal of outperforming, and you compromise all of your all of your approach and process and character in order to do that, chances are you're just going to get further and further away from the stuff that you're actually good at. Whereas like I found, you know, anecdotally, super anecdotally, the people that have harmonized to their character and just like, you know what, like I don't, I just don't care to do this anymore, right? I just don't. Like that actually paradoxically ends up with like pretty good performance for people because they're like, you know, I'm just going to go with the flow. And they don't fight it as much. And, and don't get me wrong, people who have like the ultra high maintenance, you know, like pod shop, line item on model approach, they, that, that works too. But there are a lot of ways to put to win this game. I think where I'm at is like, I understand pretty well the things that I own. I'm sure that there are a lot of people that understand them better than I do, right? Like really, really, really granular. But I think I understand the big drivers. And I don't think that I'm taking as much business model risk as I perceive in a lot of things that I look at. And I don't know if I underperform 
Um, I'm not sure on a risk adjusted basis, I actually care that much. And, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm over weighting the quality of my portfolio. That's very possible. But I guess at the end of the day, I'm just trying to get to the end of my life and have more than I have today. And I'm just trying to, to do it in a way that I understand. So maybe, maybe I am a below average market participant, but if I get where I need to go, that's what I'm more concerned with. Well, but I think you've also fed into something else that I'm borderline obsessed with, right? Which is that I think the last two years show us beyond doubt that the the premium placed on resilience is going to be structural. And I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, like saying anything forward looking is going to be structural is, is, is probably pretty stupid, right? But like, you look at these systems that are now kind of gradually like juddering themselves apart. And you're like, if you don't have redundancy in your supply chain, or you don't have that extra little bit of cash on hand, or you don't have a slightly overpaid workforce, right? Like you can you can define it in a million different ways, right? But as a business, if you don't have slack in the system, and if you've optimized this just for, just for productivity, you're going to get in trouble the moment the environment changes. And that's something that I've learned from sort of a, a fairly obsessive study of natural systems. And then if, you, if you're not set up the same as a person, right? It's like, you know, Morgan Housel's book where he's like, I keep more cash than I need to. And that's fine. Like the spreadsheet says I need to keep less cash, but I keep more. And I think, I think the world that we're going into for the next 30 or 40 years is going to be very different from the one we just come from. And having a huge, well, having a, a, a significantly greater amount of slack in every part of your life is going to be more important. I may actually need to outperforming as a consequence. What do you think is going to be different about the next 30 to 40 years? We'll put this in prediction, sure to go wrong. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, everything <laughs> I say is now guaranteed to be nonsense. Um, it's a really weird bifurcation, actually. So I've just read two books. And so obviously, I'm just going to repeat the last two books that I've read, right? Like, But I just read Vaclav Smil's How the World Really Works. And then this week, uh, I read Peter Zahan's book on deglobalization. And Smil's book is basically like, you intellectual morons don't understand how huge and energy intensive the modern world is, right? We're all sitting here in our digital business models looking at, at zero marginal cost, yada, yada, you know, five minute grocery, whatever it is, right? And he's like, the world uses more cement in one year than it does in, it did in the entire 20th century. And uh, sorry, entire first half of the 20th century. And there's no less energy intensive commercial scale alternative for that. Same in ammonia, same in plastic, same in steel. So it's like, you can think about these digital business models all you want, but you're not going to be able to get around that. And maybe human ingenuity will come up with something, but it hasn't yet. And we actually haven't reduced the energy intensity of our society. So like, I can hear all the people listening being like, but things will, things always get better. And he's like, yes, but we don't tend to get any, any less energy intense. And it's a, it's a very, very well argued book. And then on the other side, you have Peter Zahan is the geopolitical strategist, and it's a much, much, much more sensationalist book. But he basically just lays out how the fracturing of the entire globalization system is going to lead to a zero-sum game that's going to get much, much, much more exacerbated by pretty terrible demographics everywhere. Like half the world is now breeding below replacement rate, and that's going to accelerate. And he thinks that you know China goes from like fully urbanized to de to demographic collapse in the space of one generation. He's hugely bullish on the US and hugely negative on China. And I don't know enough to have a view on that. So like I said, there was a bifurcation. On the one hand, you have this like real world. If this starts coming apart, it's going to be 
like it, it, it holds the potential for famine, war, you know, like major crazy commodity inflation. And I think part of that is you know, something I wrote a couple of weeks ago is that I think, you know, now monetary is out of monetary policy is kind of out of the game. Fiscal policy has to take over. And that's going to be a very, very different kind of market. And I think the second thing is that I have a much more weirder and pretentious viewpoint that I think we're accelerating towards a phase change in consciousness that will probably happen simultaneously with all the, the mess up in the physical world. But that makes me very, very optimistic. So I had this like weirdly pessimistic physical worldview and very optimistic kind of cultural and, and kind of philosophical view. What's your view on consciousness? Well, this is weird, right? But I like weird. Let's uh, get weird. Yeah, let's get weird. So um, one of the best books I've ever read, definitely top two, is Joseph Campbell's Power of Myth. Um, and in my opinion, Joseph Campbell is like a terrible writer. But this is a dialogue from, uh, I think, a PBS show towards the end of his life with Bill Moyers. And he just basically is like, here's what all the myths mean for, across human culture. And we have the wrong word for myths. Probably we should use legends. But the idea is, is that if a story becomes really popular or stays really popular for several hundred thousand years, it encodes information that's probably incredibly important for our, our evolution. So like my wife loves Real Housewives, right? And I take the piss out of her all the time for that. But then you realize if you look at like Robin Dunbar's work, he's like 60% of all human conversation is gossip. Why? Because if you're in a tribe, you need to know the state of mind of everyone else in the tribe, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, someone could cheat, someone can be behaving badly, someone can be behaving well. So it's existentially important for you to understand everyone else in your social group. So we're drawn to those stories, right? Because they, they confer a benefit. And Campbell's big thing was this hero's journey, which is almost a cliche. But basically, it's limitlessly interesting. It's sort of been like the most, the, the thing that's fascinated me most over the last few years. And if you look at the prevalence of the hero's journey in like modern media, it's accelerating. Um, so like from Avatar, most successful you know, movie ever is the one-to-one -one hero's journey, The Matrix, Interstellar, almost every Marvel movie now, almost every Pixar movie now, all has a, often a very surprisingly accurate recreation of the hero's journey. And for those, for those people that don't know it, like Mike Mobison did a study, well, referenced a study on a podcast a while back where he talked about ants. Um, and ants basically run a pheromone trail to a food source. And then as the more ants run that pheromone trail, they get the, the, the trail gets stronger, right? But every so often ants will peel off that pheromone trail and just look for new food. And they found, and this kind of blew me away, that the rate of change with which the ants moved into exploration mode was directly correlated to the uncertainty of the environment. So basically something in the ants made them realize that the environment was deteriorating. And if they were stuck with a single food source, they were doomed, right? So they started exploring really hard. And what I think the hero's journey is, is a, an unconscious representation of a desire for a face change in consciousness. And all I mean by that, right, if you look at Moana, which I've now watched 40 times because I've got a three-year-old, and Moana exists on an island, she's, she's going to be the chief, right? She's, you know, she's, she's Bill in a stable office job. She's Tom in a stable Wall Street job, right? And her environment starts deteriorating, like the, the actual like agriculture on her island starts deteriorating. And she gets this call from her heart to explore the ocean. 
and then she she goes through a bunch of trials and tribulations. She crosses the threshold uh, of getting away the re- uh, getting over the reef in her islands. She meets a bunch of different people. She she encounters sort of the manifestation of the ego in this big crab who's only interested in outside appearances. But at the end of the day, she reconciles with the spirit of nature and returns her heart to the spirit of nature. And whilst that all sounds a bit hokey, all it means is basically a way for us to move away from our current very, very exploitative mindset towards something that's much more aligned with our environment. And our environment is signaling back to us that the the way that we're structured, both kind of societally and neurologically, is not working for us. And the way that we know it's true is that we keep watching the same story over and over again. We keep watching these Marvel movies about superheroes over and over again. And basically, like, we're unconsciously drawn to them. And if you ask people why they like a certain movie, they can't answer that question. But they're all heroes' journeys. And the reason why it's the hero's journey is because this impetus, like the ants can tell something's going wrong, we can unconsciously tell something's going wrong. You know, Squid Game goes mega, mega globally viral. And Squid Game is just the inverse of the hero's journey. It's like what happens when you have a zero-sum environment where everyone's got shed loads of debt and they're competing against each other to the death, right? So all these stories going viral at the same time, I think is an unconscious reflection of this shift in consciousness, if that makes any sense. I think it sort of does i think what you're saying is that people are drawn to uh the stories because they kind of know that something needs to change in their life and uh currently it's manifesting itself in media yes that's exactly yeah Yeah. if the demographic picture is is accurate which i i from what i have seen uh the the data is that we are not replicating at the rate that we need to and we're getting older especially in developed countries um and you have debt and you have sort of a shift back to uh maybe like a lifestyle that is a little less um good centered or whatever i have one of these brains that like my my brain continues to lead back to low rates over the long term it seems it seems very like deflationary to me now commodities could like really explode but it all adds up to really low growth yeah i I think you're right like i mean i don't see how you can't not be but the weird thing right so if i was a world leader reading either smill or zayhan's book right and if you think we're going into a fiscal stimulus stage you'd be like well shit i've got to rebuild everything i've got to rebuild all strategic industries on my own shores I've got to, you know, make sure that the low-income people are being well provided for. I've got to rebuild my infrastructure. I've got to, you know, complete in the state of the US, like, you know, completely, completely change state capacity. So, like, how you do that and don't generate inflation, I don't know. Yeah. Right. And so then you get then you get into like sort of the death spiral we're in at the moment. So, like short term, sure. Right. And like like how you match the pension liabilities. With, with like your entire country or your debt burden at like 6% rates. I don't know, right? And maybe we're about to find out. Well, the nice thing is you can probably fund your future obligations in it at okay uh, rates, but we're going to have a big mark-to-market uh, liability, right? Relative to, uh, well, our liability is staying the same, but our, our mark-to-market asset valuations are going down quite a bit, right? Like there's been nowhere to hide. The 60-40 portfolio has had the biggest drawdown in history, I think. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so easy right now to get so bearish 
I'm trying to push myself to think about, you know, what, what are the conversations that we're going to be having in 18 to 24 months, right? What, what does the world look like then? Um, so that I'm not like mired in what may go wrong today and for the next year and a half. So what do you think? Oh, dude, I don't know. I mean, I, um, I mean, you know, I think everybody becomes a macro tourist and well, I shouldn't say everybody, I should say everybody that likes to talk becomes a macro tourist in uh, periods like this. But I, I mean, I could see a scenario where, so Target was way over inventoried. Yeah. Shipping rates were super high. People, it, it appears as though buyers in corporations in mass sort of like overestimated the demand for certain products and didn't anticipate the shift to other products. And I think it's plausible that that created inflationary pressures that were not, you know, maybe, maybe that that's not going to continue on an ongoing basis. And then I think that we need to get to actually, um, Amanda Gotti talked about this on the episode, and I, I agree with her. Um, I think we're like, as a society, moving in waves right now because we kind of like all shut down at one time. So we all spent on our home at the same time. And now, like, a lot of people haven't been able to travel because not everyone lives in Florida where we haven't believed in COVID for almost a year. So, like, now you have like this huge shift to travel. And I just think that there's waves of human behavior that we need to get through. Uh, the one thing that makes me nervous is I, I hope that our policymakers don't throw us into yet another halt because it's felt like we were halted and then we had massive stimulus to get us going again. And now if we end up trying to induce a recession to back off inflation, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I worry that that goes wrong, but if it does, in 18 months, you know, maybe we're looking at a world that, uh, you know, looks looks a lot better than than today does uh, on a go forward basis. But I have no idea. Like we were talking earlier, I could tell you, well, we were in a bubble. I, I have no idea where we are on this way down. I mean, if somebody told me we're, we're down another 50 percent from here, I, I totally plausible. 70 fine like I, I don't know where you stop in a crash right like i have no idea and i don't know anyone right now that i talk to that is particularly excited about being somebody else's exit liquidity right now <laughs> right right and again this is a trite observation right but it, you look at like what's happening in japan right now you look at like what's happening in in sort of like you know, presumably relatively esoteric corners of the world like Sri Lanka, and you're, you're just starting to see the ripple effects are almost entirely negative on a macro basis, right? And and that just means that the one thing we've learned from the last couple of years is that something's going to going to show up somewhere that we don't expect, and it's going to be quite nasty, right? And 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 that's just, I think that's just a game that we're in right now, and we're in an asymmetric downside risk environment, uh, and whilst like you know. I want to make clear I'm sort of generally quite long-term positive on the world. The thing that, that there's, there's something I don't know enough about to have a strong opinion on to my earlier point. Right. But so my understanding is, is that generally speaking, consumer finances in the States are pretty good right now. That's but, the rumor. Yeah. 
right? But everyone's watching the news and is freaking out, right? And so you get the reflexivity where people kind of think themselves into a recession, which, you know, you know how that works, right? But there's also something else that I'm thinking about, which is that you have a population that's just learned it's, it can protest, right? You have a population that was, was offered crypto as a way out, right? Or Web3 as a way out, right? And, and that kind of went away, right? And then I know there's a lot of debate on this, but I, I feel like there's less social mobility within American culture than there was 30 or 40 years ago. And there's been this crazy period of wage deflation and you now have inflation. So you have people that are going to be increasingly back, pushed back into jobs with limited social mobility, with no savings savings cushion and completely different priorities in their life. Well, no, that's an exaggeration, but the having watched a world with different priorities and I, you know, whilst I'm not, you know, forecasting revolution, I think there's going to be some really interesting socioeconomic implications for the world's largest consumer, which is the U.S. Right? Yeah, I don't know. So, like, just to just to talk about what you were saying about the consumer. So, Bank of America. This is last. I think it was last week or two weeks ago. <clears throat> they said, um, "We get a question, obviously, daily on the consumer. Um, June to date is up nine percent spending." He's talking about balances, right? Like, so like checking balances pre pandemic. If you're looking in the sort of one to $2,500 cohort, people have got seven to 7.5 times more cash in their account today than they did pre pandemic for the group. That's $2,500 to 5,000. We've got five times more than we had pre pandemic. That's a lot. Yeah. Now it's kind of scary that so many people have are in that bracket, right? Like, um, yeah. That, that's an issue. And then like federal tax receipts, I mean, the most of the tax receipts are withheld uh, withheld income and employment taxes in, uh, I think this is 2019, it was like 1.9 trillion uh, year to date. And yesterday I was looking, it's 2.3. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot more taxes being paid now and the consumer's in a better, uh, better shape than they've been in a long time. I kind of wonder if how all this manifests is like, I'm almost certain, which means call it 51%, that like there is going to be serious, serious pain in importing emerging market co- countries. Yeah. Uh, and I almost wonder if we're in this scenario where like, and this, this strikes me as a stupid thought, but I can't help but have it. If like somehow we export the bad that some policies create like just to the, to the most vulnerable parts of the world. And I wonder if that doesn't create revolution around us and what that, what that destabilizes geopolitically. But I'm not, I guess I'm not sure that I think America is going to go through um, quite as, quite as rough of a time. Thank God we have food supply and gas and uh, stuff like that. Like we, you know, pretty advantaged. Oh my God. Well, that's Zahan's view down to a, a T, right? Which is that like, we, we have Mexico on our Southern border. That's one of the best demographic developing countries and still has, I think a six to one wage differential, right? So it's not as good as Asia, but it's pretty damn close. Right. So Mexico is like a massive, massive advantage. We have, you know, Canada to the North, which is about as stable a neighbor as you can get. And then we have great resources, actually pretty good demographics, which was news to me. 
you know, relatively stable capital markets. And he's like, even the politics looks kind of dumb at the moment, but he's like, America can ha- afford to have really petty debates because they just don't matter. They don't impact anything that's important. And so he's just like, actually, America is in by far the best state of the world. And if you get like major deglobalization, where he's talking about like a billion people dying of famine, right? Like he, it, then basically like the US pulls up the drawbridge, decides what shipping lanes it wants to police, and just leaves everyone else. And that doesn't seem that plausible to me. And maybe I'm overstating his argument. Like the response to Ukraine makes me think that the US still wants a role to play internationally. But the the, the point that you're saying is that like, yeah, if you're a commodity-based like economy or a single product-based economy in that kind of environment where you can't ship your stuff out or your currency collapses or you go to Venezuela or Zimbabwe, right? Like it's going to get real. And so being relatively self-contained helps. And he pulls out France, New Zealand and Argentina. And I think Sweden as the other countries that are kind of in that category. I mean, talk about like not not deserving to have an opinion. I never could have told you that the US dollar would rip like it has. But, you know, then then you on top of importing, you know, all the commodities are priced the majority of commodities at least are priced in US dollars. So you've got oil going up, you've got the dollar going up. I hope that the emerging world gets through uh this this next two year period. Yeah, me too. Well, I mean the correlation between food shortages and political unrest is basically one to one, right? Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. My understanding is about fifty percent of Brazilian agriculture doesn't grow without um fertilizer. So, you know, like, again, going back to Zeyhan, because it's, it's just top of mind, he's like, agriculture is the most globally interlinked of all of the systems, and it is also the most fragile. So if you miss a planting season, you know, and that's confirmed by the conversations I've had with experts as well, like, you know, if you miss a couple of planting seasons, right, like, this stuff gets baked in the cake a lot easier than, you know, tech supply chain aspects. So yeah, What do you the, mean, like, uh, like food shortages do? Yeah. That like, yeah, if, if, if you don't plant the right thing in the right place at the right time or one of the dependencies goes offline somewhere else because of some random blight or, or, or swine flu or something, right? Like the knock-on effects are really bad and they last a very long time. Whereas like you can repair a supply chain in certain situations really quite quickly or you can get secondary sources. But like if you're the only person in the country that, you know, in the world that grows, you know, sunflower oil, there's literally no substitute, right? Like in, in certain situations. You know what I heard we have a shortage of? There is some, I want to say it's called uh, DCP. Uh, I'm not going to, instead of spewing uh, fake news here, uh, it's, a, it's a diesel petroleum additive. Um, and apparently our trucks have to have it and the engines are programmed to shut off if uh, trucks don't have it. And there's a huge shortage right now because uh, I guess we don't want Union Pacific. This is all hearsay, so do your own due diligence, folks. But Union Pacific is the major importer. And they and they have said because DCP comes from Russia, they're not going to ship it. But like we have a massive shortage. And what does that do to the trucks on the road? If we can't get that, so you know what this all makes me think of, and I'm 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 going to go back to Weird Town now because that's where I live, right? So there's this you know, cognitive psychologist called Donald Hoffman, uh, and I read an article that he wrote a while back, basically saying that like we don't experience the world 
as it actually is. We experience the world as we've best evolved to see it, right? Like a, an earthworm has never seen a sunset because it's never needed to see a sunset, right? And a bloodhound's nose affords it an experience of the world that's dramatically more complex than ours. It's easy to understand how an earthworm would be able to see the world less well than us, but it's hard to understand how other species can see the world in better dimensions than us, right? And he just describes the way that we interact with the world as a desktop on a computer, right? So like when we, when we open our eyes and we look outside, we're basically seeing the desktop. We're not seeing the way that the actual PC works. And that is like a metaphor for what I feel is happening right now in markets, that because of globalization and specialization over a period of like 100 years, all of the inner workings of the world economy have been completely hidden away from us, like a, like a PC to a desktop, right? And suddenly people like you and I, but mostly me, because like I'm sitting in my bedroom in Manhattan, right? Like I'm not out in the real world. And suddenly it's like, oh, I can't get baby formula. Oh, well, that's really pretty bad because I've got two kids under four, right? Or like, oh, suddenly there's this, you know, this component in diesel fuel that's critical to everything and, is, and has a massive dependency. And I just feel that maybe from an investment perspective, and I was thinking about this yesterday, was like, is trying to find these, I'm, I'm sure this is a, like an obvious thing to say, but is trying to find these fragilities because it's going to end up with like gouging and like massive spikes and all this crazy volatility through the system. So where it's looking for things that are hyper resilient, it's also looking for things that are hyper fragile because when they break, the pricing is just going to go bonkers. This like, is the actually. commodity thesis. Right, right. And that's what I learned from from talking to Jay Mintzmeyer, right? Like Jay has taught me a little bit about shipping and we were talking about rates and he, he was like, people say to me, well, you know, if if 15% of capacity comes offline because China shuts down, isn't that terrible, the shipping? And he's like, well, what people aren't thinking of is everything's a price times volume game. So if you take 15% of capacity off and demand now exceeds capacity by, say, 3%, Walmart and Target are going to pay, like, through the roof on shipping rates to get what they need to the port. So you actually, on a P times V basis, end up with more aggregate revenue than you otherwise would. And in a high operating leverage business, you actually see good outcomes from what you would perceive to be bad. And this is like highly un, uh, unvetted. But I think from what I'm learning from listening to some of the commodity folks is there's just like a lot of these materials out there that are really basic materials that, you know, you can't just flip a switch. I have no idea what I'm talking about now, but it's hard to believe that Putin doesn't see this stuff. Right. Right. And yeah, I have no view on, on how that all ends, but it does <laughs> Matt Klein, I, I don't know if you, I, I subscribe to his Substack. He's an economist. And I think he's brilliant. And like, he, uh, he he wrote a piece a while ago, and I think he went on the Odd Lots podcast to talk about it, where he's like, the Germans had a phrase called uh, fixing the roof while the sun shines. And what they meant by it was um, actually like cleaning up their budgets when there was low rates, right? And he was like, yeah, but you should have actually fixed your roof while the sun was shining. And you look into Europe and you're like, you're now learning all of these lessons at the worst time in history to learn them when rates are going up and commodity prices are at like records, right? Like you're learning you didn't build any of this stuff, 
right? And you've always been incredibly complacent about someone else being able to supply it. And I just feel that like, maybe like, you know, like, like the modern news cycle, if the war in Ukraine dies down, people will forget about it and we'll just go back to the way things are. And that's sort of Vaclav Smil's argument. This is like, mankind's always just muddled through this stuff. We we always get worked up that it's the end of the world and we always just muddle through. And, and I'm, I'll put a 98% probability on the fact that he's right. But I also wonder, like, you know, you've seen Macron basically say that, like, we need to rebuild our domestic industry. We need to rebuild our military. You know, we need to, you know, double down on nukes. Not literally, right? But you, you're seeing this, I think, across the world where, like, Putin saw all these weaknesses and dependencies and seems to have ruthlessly exploited them. And so now if you're a, if you're a world leader, you've got this choice of, like, do I choose the worst time in modern history to enact fiscal stimulus into a revolutionary environment or do I just hope that I don't get exploited again. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how that doesn't descend into a zero-sum like death spiral where people just start tariffing and getting more competitive. Like maybe it actually ends up with the reverse that you get kind of all these trade alliances as people realize how screwed they are. But it, it, it strikes me. So Russell Napier, I think, is one of the best guys to follow at the moment. Um, he wrote a piece, I think, in the middle of 2020 saying that after 20 years as a deflationista, he was moving to the I know. He, he called that perfectly what when he did that. What a legend. And yeah, he is a legend. He didn't forecast any of the supply chain stuff, to the best of my knowledge, right? So it was more fiscal stimulus that he was like, governments now have control of the money tree, and you're going to have to pry it out of their cold, dead hands. But he makes that point, right, that you're just in a different – the monetary you – know, central bank's now irrelevant, right? It's been a central bank game for 30 years, right? It's out, they're irrelevant. It's governments. Uh, and that's just a different market. Um, and so like, you know, like he got my attention a couple of years ago with that. Now I'm watching very closely and he's saying the same thing. So, yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I got to re up on what Lacey Hunt's saying. I think Lacey Hunt's more in the, um, in the low, low rate camp, but I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive. Like, I, I don't know that there's some law out there that says that credit needs to get a real return. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there may be a possibility where credit is just priced to get a, a negative return uh, relative to commodities. But yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, you got inflation going on and um, it's, it's a pickle. It's quite a pickle. It's, it, it, I, you know, I guess that this is the consequence of uh, shutting down an economy and then trying to start it up. And I don't, I don't know how we fix it, but I at least I know I don't know. I think the wide there's a wide range of outcomes. I don't know either. Uh, and, I, and again, like I, I wouldn't pretend to have a view, and I think it's an area where I'd be like incredibly weak in terms of analysis. But what what I think I do have a sense for is of this sort of slowly and in some cases quite rapidly changing societal priority that that call me naive i think is going to hold that basically like you know the people that are lucky enough to to be able to work from home are going to hold on to that and the people that realize that they're they've they've accumulated vast amounts of useless stuff are, are now going to focus more on experiences and there seems to be sort of this this global shift in consciousness that actually may end up getting accelerated through a terrible recession that people are just like, you know, screw this, right? Like I'm, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Um, so like I, 
I feel that that's in the air right now and I keep seeing evidence of it everywhere. So it's like as the physical world kind of judges itself apart, I think that people are, are going to have a very different approach to their own worlds. Well, I know that it's uh, it's not a very popular topic in 2022, but I do kind of wonder if the metaverse has something to do with, uh, I mean, it could be a cheap way to have experiences. Um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see. It's a long, long, long way away, and it was a nice buzzword last year. But, um, I, you know, I don't know. I was looking at plane tickets recently, and uh, there's demand destruction in this household. I can assure you of that. Yeah, I I think a lot about the metaverse, and I think that the one thing that we're looking for, I think it's, it's called far transfer, which is that are the things that you're doing in virtual worlds translating into some form of mastery in your real world, right? Like if, like I'm British, so I can't dance, right? If my Oculus or whatever it turns out can, you know, teach me Dance Dance Revolution and can actually turn me into like a good dancer or like teach me how to be a, a great swordsman or martial artist or something, right? Like that that strikes me as a... I don't know, man, like the, the metaphor is simple, right? I've been on Twitter, like pathologically for the last 18 months, right? And if you use Twitter to watch angry anons, right? It's gonna, it's gonna obliterate your mental health. But if you use Twitter to do what you and I have just done, which is meet someone really cool and go on their podcast or get to meet them in real life or go out for drinks, it's been a step function change in the, in the number of cool people that I've met. So whenever I look at people talking about digital worlds, I'm right. where is this bleeding into real life and how is it bleeding into real life? And I think the thing that really interested me about the first iteration of the metaverse was that a lot of the video games that were being created weren't shooting each other in the face in Call of Duty. There was a lot of that, but it was these infinite games that were creative and collaborative. And I think that also reflects what the generation wants. They want a less punitive economic system. And a lot of the older generation is like, you know, screw you, work harder. And I'm like, well, cool. What skill set would you be getting right now in this market if you were 21 when everything is digitally fungible, right? Like, it, so I, I look to what the what form the metaverse has right now for clues as to what's going to happen in the real world. And if it doesn't bleed over into the real world, it kind of scares me. The dinner that we went to, when was it? That was probably almost a year ago. Every single one of those people I met on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, it's been nuts, man. Like, I just like... And I like, that was a really up. fucking cool group of people to go right. to dinner with. Like, we had yeah. a great time. Well, that's it, right? Your ability to find people that you resonate with on a personal basis on Twitter is unbelievable. It's not your own friends being annoying, right, on Facebook, right? And you can, you can, you can weed people out really quickly. But like, you know, I've DM'd a great number of my heroes, on on twitter and had like a 90 percent response rate and when i've met them they say never meet your heroes they've all been great right like and it's it it's just been a really really phenomenal positive experience but i think the the broader lesson there is that if you can find ways of pulling digital worlds into the physical world it will have it will have meaningful benefits but if you're using it as a way to withdraw that strikes me as a lot less positive yeah you know, it's funny. I, I don't know if I just had this conversation, but I have a lot, so I'm going to have it again. And if it, people have to listen to it twice, they got to listen to it twice. But what I have realized uh, from from Twitter and how I use it, and I, and I guess I kind of knew it anyway, but I, I didn't. Now I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, is like I have a uniquely good skill at, at networking, right? And um, it's like lighter fluid on that. And, and that like, if, 
when I said that I didn't know if I really wanted to outperform, what I'm really actually saying is like, I, I'm not the guy that's going to read 10 K's all day and outwork somebody behind a desk. But this is the skill set that I have that I bring to the table. And I need to like, I get more enjoyment out of providing education, entertainment, and some form of like self-help. I mean, the amount of like, uh, inbounds that I get that, that people are like, dude, I listen to your pod and like it changed the way I think about this or, or like it, like that Arnold Vandenberg really meant, uh, episode really meant something to me. Like that's so much more meaningful to me. So I don't know. I think what I'm really saying is I want to lean into whatever it is that is going on that I think you and I are both tapping into. I think that's like what I care about a lot more than portfolio performance. Let me take it back to crazy town again, right? And this is like a super crazy tangent, but I just noticed when you were talking just then, and I'm sure people don't see the feed, but you just kept pointing at your heart whenever you were talking about the way that you feel about things. And like, this, this has just happened over the last couple of months. And I don't think I've told a huge number of people about it because it's just so weird, right? But like, I've been kind of obsessed with studying the myths because I feel that there's, your ROI from learning about myths is a million times higher than learning than reading some psychological study that isn't going to replicate, right? And all of the myths across human culture make reference to your heart being a guide, right? Which, like, what in school were you taught that the human heart does? It keeps me alive. But how? Pumping blood. Right. Okay. Well, that was my understanding as well. And that probably is also, like, a big part of what it does. But... I, I very like synchronistically read a book the other day called uh, with a really off-putting title called uh, The Secret Teachings of Plants. Um, and it was this guy, Buna, who basically, it doesn't, it turns out the book's not really about plants at all. It's about the human heart. And his argument is that the human heart is effectively a very, very, very finely calibrated electromagnetic transmitter. That, I mean, that bit is actually true. That's why an EEG works. Um, so every time your heart beats, there's, you know, electromagnetic particles in it that, that generate a pulse. And that's in reciprocal relationship with all of your organs to kind of keep everything regulated. But it also projects beyond your body. And his point is, is that we don't know how far it projects. And the implication being, and, and sort of the way I've, I've lived my life to some not financial, but certainly personal success is that, you know, Joseph Campbell's big thing was if you follow your bliss, doors will open where only there were walls. And the idea being that if you follow things that you're passionate about, you are effectively navigating that three or four dimensional information field that your heart is detecting, right? If you, like I do this, like the, the big change in the way I've worked over the last couple of years is I'm in, incredibly like inactive for long periods of time in terms of what I'm interested in. And then when something grabs my attention, I go a mile deep, right? And I follow these things and my work and my understanding of the world has evolved in this very, very unpredictable way, but it continuously leads me to people like you and, and wonderful people and, you know, great podcasts to get on and all that sort of stuff. And I just believe that it's sort of literally true that, there's, that there is this information field that we're a part of that we discredit because reductive science hasn't yet found it but you know i know this is a bit of a rant but the one thing that i found very interesting is that i've got to uh, to know a guy called philip shepherd who's all about embodied cognition and the dangers of kind of getting stuck up in your head in abstract ideas 
And he, uh, in his book, he talks about this uh, story about a, a, a Western uh, psychologist going to a tribe in Malaysia, I think, called the Songhai. And he talks about how he takes um, one of the tribesmen to see the ocean for the first time. And the tribesman just stands on the beach watching the waves um, for a few hours and then goes back to the rest of the tribe inland. He's never seen the sea before. He calls a meeting. He's like, guys, I've just seen the big, the big water. It covers the whole earth. There's mountains under there. There's valleys under there. There's fish the size of houses that we've never seen before. There's, there's flat fish. And he, and he goes along this description. And the, the psychologist is like, you just stood on the shore for like two hours. You didn't even go in the water. How do you know any of these things? And the guy just kind of turns to him and goes, oh, it's, it's in my heart. And like that sounds like absolutely absurd until you think about it as sort of an electromagnetic sensor because they basically talked about it as this uh, ancient way of knowing. And what's interesting is that the Western guy, Wolf, was walking through the jungle with them uh, one day and he'd, he'd done six continuous days in the jungle trying to learn this means of perception. And one day, uh, Ahmed, the same tribesman, turns to him and goes, um, find water. And he's, he watches him like, try and listen, try and smell. And the tribesman just stops him and goes, no, 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 the water's in your heart. And he just drops in and suddenly sees the whole jungle in three dimensions and just sees where the water is inside a cup of a plant and walks over to it and pulls it away. And he, he just kind of has this through the matrix view, right? And all of this may be complete nonsense. And I'm sure many people listening to it think, Jesus, this is nonsense. What, what's this guy talking about? But as a way to structure a life, having this kind of intrinsic faith to understand that we exist in this limitlessly complex sensory ecosystem to Donald Hoffman's point about you just seeing the desktop, like you matching your investment style to something that is intrinsically resonant to you is actually like the Arnold Vandenberg way of doing things, right? Where he could handle that savage multiple years of underperformance in energy because he was just so harmonized as an individual. Yeah, I think uh, I think that the problem. Well, my Achilles heel is that I'm not harmonized as an individual, so I, mm. I I tinker too much. So part of what I'm trying to do is like put blockades up around myself to not allow myself to tinker. For instance, uh, was I lucky or good? Uh, probably eighty uh, percent lucky and twenty percent decent. But like I, uh, when oil went negative, I bought Occidental bonds. I think they were yielding like 15 or 16%. I probably should have held those, right? And like I, I flipped out of them to go into something else. And now they would be on a risk adjusted basis, probably my best investment. And I just, I, I do stuff like that where I think I have, um, I think I have a good idea and then I don't let the idea play out. Uh, I, I would say that would be like if I could be critical of, of or my biggest criticism of myself is that and then probably too quick of a uh, of a bias to yes, as opposed to a bias to no. Are those things about yourself that you think you could or should change? Uh, it, as a human? No. Uh, as an investor, I should probably at least figure out some some safety walls around them. Well, because you could look at it in two ways, right? Which is that like. You know, one of my favorite stock market quotes is, if you don't know who you are, the stock market's an expensive place to find out, right? Like, <laughs> and, and, and so you can look there at kind of this constant investor self-improvement and be like, I've got, to, I've got to take on 
the traits of all these other people who are successful, right? Like, you know, the, the, the cult of Warren and Charlie on Twitter, right? Like, whereas it's just like, well, no, maybe you should just be leaning harder into your idiosyncrasies and foibles, right? Like, yes, be rational, right? But also understand where the intuition is. And that's something I've realized recently is that like, what you should be doing, as speaking of someone who's a terrible investor, I might add, but like, is get reps, get reps at the things that you want to get good at, and then your intuition will get better. So like, if you made a mistake, there was an actual mistake, and this was what one of my friends who's one of the best investors and I told me, if you made a mistake that was an actual mistake, when you look back on it, that you can identify in a way going forwards, make sure you don't make that mistake again. But just looking backwards and saying, I should have done X is useless, right? Because there was nothing to learn. But if you can do a post-mortem on it and be like, all right, I've now created a feedback loop where I'm never going to make that mistake in similar circumstances again, that works. But that's much harder to do. And to the point that you were saying earlier, you probably need to have a real-time journal of what you were thinking before you made the mistake so that you don't litigate it afterwards and say you were thinking something you weren't, which is something, you know, Jim O'Shaughnessy's talked about. Yeah. I have this theory on on some of Buffett's bets that uh, maybe it's just what I'm talking to myself uh, that I should do. By taking a position in an equity or a debt uh, security, I'm by definition saying, you know, my time horizon almost always, right? I mean, unless it's like a six-month treasury that I'm buying for a cash substitute, my duration is almost always at least three years. To cut that short, I think truncates whether or not I'm correct or not. Now you can say, well, did the model that you built like uh, coincide with the, like, did the world change? Did the model change? I just think that my weakness is I have a holding duration versus a theoretical duration mismatch sometimes. And I need to be willing to just let the bet play out. I I think I'd be a much better investor if I did that. So that's what I'm trying to remind myself, especially in a bear market. Dude. I mean, like, if I had a penny for, you know, I spent like what, 15 years on the sell side, right? And if I had a penny for every institutional investor I met for like the first, like, who are we meeting? And they'd be like, we only invest in high quality compounder GARP stocks. And our holding period is longer than all of our competitors because we believe in time arbitrage, right? That was like like 80% of all the meetings I went into, right? Saying exactly the same script because it was the one thing that all the consultants would want to hear. And then you actually watch what these people do, right? Like, and it's just like, it's it, it's got nothing to do with it. And obviously like that's a that's a blanket statement that isn't true of everyone, right? But it, it it's... It's the same for everyone. And I guess it's like if you're if you've noticed a major mismatch that you're only holding stocks for a month and your desired holding period is three years, right? Like you've one of the two of those dissonances have got to close, right? Yeah. And I think that the the answer is uh, you know, the guy spear, just lock yourself in. I mean, but yes and no, right? Again, like just look at survivorship bias, right? Like survivorship bias, what is it like? the average lifespan of a company in the S&P is now 15 years, I think. And it was like 50, like 50 years ago, right? Like the, the and do you feel like the next two years are going to be more benign or less benign as an environment, right? 
that creates a huge tension where it's like, wow, if I just hold my Apple position for the last 20 years, it's like, yeah, but like a shed load of companies have, have like gone to zero. And if you look at all the JP Morgan does a great, great report on this called The Agony and the Ecstasy. Uh, and it looks at the statistics behind which companies lose their value and never recover. It's something crazy, like 40%. Like I, I, I pulled that number on my butt, but like it, it's, it's, it's a bonkers number and the survivorship bias with it. So it's just like, uh, buy and hold's great if you've bought the right hold, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think the other thing that I've sort of evolved into is um, I used to think, well, if I bought it higher and now it's down 30%, like it's a way better deal. And now I've realized like, well, either I'm missing something or actually it's justified to be down and not adding is uh, potentially potentially a, as correct as adding, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's all very nuanced, right? It's all super hard uh, to know when when you're wrong and when you're not, which is what makes it fun. Right. And you're going to do that backwards, right? Like, I think everything I try and do in my life has a feedback loop in it because my habits suck, right? Like terrible. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm the least effective life hacker in the world, but I have realized the one thing is like, is, is there a feedback loop? So like my whoop, like just tells me not to drink. And it rewards me when I do cardio, two things I don't want to do, but I quite want to win like the leagues I'm in with all these ridiculously athletic people I know, right? And like, if there is a feedback loop in your performance where you actually understand why the errors were made, I mean, that's like, those are the ingredients for flow, right? But the problem is with investing is it's such a noisy environment that you often don't know what mistake you made. And I guess the other thing that's tangential is that like, Again, today's market is so digitally intangible, you get reflexive neg- negativity where people don't want to buy an at-home bicycle to work out on because they think the at-home bicycle company may not be around to support them in X number of years, right? Like, so like you you get these death spirals that I think, you know, when when it was much more of a, a tangible economy, you didn't really get that so much. It's easy for Arnold to have conviction on energy because we need energy, right? But I think it's harder to have conviction on second tier stocks. Although what was interesting is that when I went to Capital Camp, and I know you were there as well, is that I spoke to a lot of people and there was actually a consistent message from the public markets investors I spoke to, which was infrastructure software. And I'm, I know nothing about the space, but you know, like not all software is equal and SaaS is a different business model than it was in any previous cycle. And you know, Gavin Baker has this term first lean where you know like people will pay their bills for this software before they pay the first lien on their debt because it's just so ludicrously mission critical and i think there's a lot of logic to that that the, the everything is in digital is in is intangible argument obviously it's a false dichotomy yeah you just have to be super specific on how you define first lien debt to your point it's not all it's not all mission critical software some is just sort of tangential stuff so I don't know, man. I, I don't know the answers. I'm I'm out here trying to learn in public. I hope I haven't, uh, you know, the hardest thing is like that curate idea that I had I, was objectively, I think, a good idea. And, um, you know, now it's down whatever, like 50% uh, all in. And like, it's hard, it's hard to want to talk about an idea, but also tell people to do their own work. And then also not feel like a burden to tell people when I sell, which I tried to do, but like I was obviously louder liking it than I was selling it. 
And part of that, you know, I would, it would be undeniable to say that, like, I really like all the people over there. I think that they're great people that I've met. I don't want a table pound selling that because it, it sucked to have to sell that. So there's like this, I, I just, um, let's put it this way. There's a lot of guys that have come before me that have said a lot of things that I'm starting to see the wisdom in. Yeah. And that's helpful, right? Like there's knowing something intellectually and there's actually knowing it in an embodied sense, right? You can circle around the same idea for 50 years before you actually is like, oh, like, oh, that fortune cookie actually makes sense because that's what it actually feels like, right? Like, like having an emotional <laughs> understanding of it is different. I was on the sell side, so I never really had enough skin in the game. But I, I psychologically relate one to one to the idea of being like publicly associated with an idea that is down fifty percent. That then, like, you have to you have to either own or disown. And then, like, how loud do you want to be when you sell it? The only thing I will say is that I've made a fairly obsessive study over the last eighteen months since I got into a content role of who does content on like FinTwit and online and Substacks in finance well. And this is going to sound like mega cheesy, but I wrote a piece about this. It's open heart, following heart, right? So to the whole following heart thing, I feel like I've covered that, but it's guys, you know, like, like Frederick who are, you know, who writes Necker's in security analysis, who's, who's very much learning in public and like laying his life out there on the line. It's people like you who are learning in public. The worst kind of personality is someone that always has the trade from yesterday, right? Like, oh, I closed that out yesterday, right? Like, we yeah, all know who those people they are, suck. right? Yeah, yeah, they or like, suck. Or like, you know, that's dumping. it, dude. Their fucking follower counts are like huge, you know? But it's just not what I'm going to do. Dude, I believe on a long enough timeline, the internet can smell inauthenticity. Yeah, and I think we've I seen, agree with that. We've seen it over the last 12 months. And when those people say something dumb or do something dumb, they get canceled so fast because they don't get the benefit of the doubt. Whereas I feel like if you did something dumb or said something dumb, you you have goodwill from your audience where people are like, yeah, he, he made a mistake. And actually you get more credibility, I feel, from owning your mistakes as long as you do it in a way that's sort of consistent with your own integrity. And I see that I see that all the time. But it it, it, is, a, it is a stunning consistency. And I mean, look, uh, did you listen to Druck's interview at Iris Zone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, thought it was quite good. Yeah, yeah, everyone's listened to it, right? But he came, he's like, I've been doing this for 45 years and there's no historical analog, right? And I'm like, all right, who else in today's market has been doing this 45 years? All right, hands up, hands up. Anyone? Okay, no, thanks, right? Like, he's doing it 45 years. He's the most cognitively flexible of almost any investor. And he's like, there's no historical analog. There's no playbook, right? And, and he's like, you've got to approach this with maximum humility. I'm like, all right, if one of the Pantheon guys says that, should you have more or less humility? And if you have less humility, you better have a really good argument. So uh, on top of that, whoever Goldman sent to the Bernstein conference, I can't, I can't think of his title right now, but he said the same thing. And I posted a quote from him and somebody popped into the replies. They were like, come on, this is 1973. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I mean, I get that. <laughs> That's nice for you to think. Um, and you may be right. Um, I, I wish that somebody would assign like a confidence interval when they say something like this is that year, but I mean, you've got Druck and you've got a guy that's super high up in Goldman, both saying that this is super complicated. Like, I don't think it's that easy. Oh yeah. I think it was maybe Tony Pascarella. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, 
step back from all the financial markets nonsense for a second and just like, do you feel that when you walk outside your apartment or your house in Florida tomorrow, that it does it feel like 1973 to you? Like you've seen movies set in 1973, right? Is the stock market comprised of the same businesses that it was comprised of in 1973? Is the world interlinked to the same degree that it was in 1973? Are the financial markets as complex as they were in 1973? Like it might be a helpful analog, but saying this is like equivalent to any other historical date, like just apply a very basic common sense check to that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the issue that I have is I'm not, um, you know, I spend my time trying to talk to people that I think can educate me and help me understand things. And I, in that way, I somewhat outsource some of my history reading because I'm not like, I would much rather get on the phone and talk with somebody that enjoys history than read it myself. And I'm not as close to the source on that. But uh, so I so I really don't know what I'm talking about when we start going back to financial history. But I will ask Jamie Catherwood. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm way more interested in what he has to say than, you know, uh, my my personal opinion. Right. Because he's the expert. Uh, and that's how I try to use social media. Yeah. In that and, way. And I think it goes back to sort of our simplistic mantra at the top, which is like. And, and this was told to me by someone on the buy side. It's like, know what you're using each person for. And also, it might not be what that person thinks they're good at, right? And, it, and it not necessarily that any, any person's a contra, right? But like, you can't do everything yourself. And actually, we've seen the humiliation of expertise, right? And if you just have go-to people that you know are better than average on certain things and you build out a slate of that, I mean, that's all I do, basically, for a living, is I find the most interesting people that I can and I platform them either at my firm or in my writing, so I'm like, this guy's either seeing the ball really well, or he's got a really differentiated view that's worth flagging up. And I think I did get a lot of reps doing that on the sell side, where I understood what the buy side wanted to hear. And I went through, you know, if you go through 150 research reports a day for 15 years, like, I don't know how many that is, but that's a lot. And you get pattern recognition for spotting things that are insightful. And so like, if I've got a skill, it's that. Like, I don't ever, I've never generated an interesting insight of my own. But I think I'm I'm reasonable at finding people that can generate them. That's interesting. Yeah. By the way, the guy was John Waldron. I looked. I wasn't. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. That's interesting because I almost feel like I'm doing something wrong, but that is my strategy, right? So like like I had a guy at Berkshire and he came up and he was like, "Dude, you know, you're gonna raise a fund," and I was like, "I promise you, I'm not gonna raise a fund." And he was like, well, why do you say that? And I said, well, either my returns are good enough and I'm not going to need one and I don't want one because I don't want that. Or they're not good enough and I can't raise the fund. Bo- <laughs> both of those fork to no. Um, but I said, but what I could do is I could help guys like you that have good returns but don't think you can market raise a fund. But like because of that, I think that there's some symbiotic relationship where I can try to use my skills to connect people and get myself in some information flow and have, I try to find people that are specialists in certain things and then validate or invalidate what they're saying. And then, uh, you know, decide whether or not I like a thesis based on that. That's basically what I've, what I have adopted as a strategy. I, I don't know if it's smart or not, but I don't care. Like that's your description of that brings me alive inside, right? 
you're just like, all right, this is what I can do. Probably not many other people are as good at it as me. I really enjoy doing it. It makes my life richer because I get to meet all these fascinating people. And I'm good at integrating their insights. And I think I can help them. Right. That's well, like that's the win-win-win game. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's critical. You can tell people playing multi-iteration games in this business. And the amount of good stuff that comes back to them it like sounds like a cliche, but it's not. Like I've just seen it all the time. And I again I've watched it, funny enough. I mean, like I watched it through downturns that like I, I started off on the sell side in England and English institutional investors are different from American ones in that American ones, particularly in like the early two thousands, often conflated uh, aggression with intelligence, right? Like, I'm going to scream at you and you're going to respect me on the, on the hedge fund side. And that was much more a part of the, the MO. Whereas UK guys were just more British about things, more friendly, right? But there were a lot of people that were really bad to the sell side for a bunch of different reasons, right? Like, just really, really disdainful. And they didn't realize that the sell side is effectively the best recruitment operation you can imagine. That when all these guys lost their job in LA, they never appeared again. You know, like they just, no one wanted to help them. And I just, you know, to anyone listening to this that is in, on either side of those fences, bad behavior gets noticed during a downturn and everyone gets humbled at some point in this business. And if you're if you're out there visibly playing a multi-iteration game, it, I feel like it almost always works out for you. Do you miss the sell side at all? I miss the sell side of like 05. I think the sell side now, like I sent a year selling data, the credit card data, and you just realize now like the level, the level of information flow and complexity and what you can add. It, there's just, there's fewer and fewer opportunities to have something that's like um, an intuitively brilliant call uh, and to add value to your clients in that way. And that was the stuff that I loved, right? Like was just like, oh, wow, I've seen something and I think it's legitimately alpha generating. I've seen a, one of our analysts has just changed his body language on something materially and has, has, has written a report on this stock that's really interesting and he's really good. And that buzz that you get of going out to someone and be like, I'm going to make you money on this and you're going to like me a lot more because I made you some money and our relationship is going to get stronger. And I then move from someone who's trying to sell you something to a trusted partner. And that I was lucky enough to have that happen in a few instances. And that's just a great way to live. And the thing that I'll say about the sell side is that, like, I think a lot of people, like, enjoy ragging on it because of, like, the price targets and occasional conflicts of interest or whatever it is, right? The caliber of individual intellectually on the sell side is ludicrously, ludicrously high. And actually, usually from an, well, a lot of times from an integrity perspective as well, because you only hear about the bad actors, right? So like the- Yeah, you're not going to read a bunch of headlines that say, hey, the sell side acted exactly as it was supposed right, to. Right, right, right. Which was the norm, right? Like, And I'd, I'd, I'd had the incredible fortune of doing some very bad jobs before I joined the sell side uh, after college. And then when they were like, the amount of money they were paying me to be intellectually curious was just an absurdity but it was a different information ecosystem back then. So, um, you know, I don't know if you want to get into it, but if you do, like, what what ended up ending your your time on the sell side? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've talked about it a lot, and it's um, it's become... I told Frederick the other day, like, the one thing I want to do with my life is help people who are stuck. 
And I think stuckness in finance is a bigger deal than a lot of other industries because the compensation is so high and it attracts personalities who are intrinsically competitive um, and aggressive, right? And I've written and talked about it a lot, but you know, I I think that my interests to the point of sort of the following your heart cliche, right? Slowly started to diverge with the sell side. I loved like my first 10, 11 years. And after that, the job changed and I kind of didn't really adjust with it because I didn't want to. I didn't want to change my personality to be what the job was coming into. And I kept trying to shoehorn myself into a place that I wasn't good. And then eventually my body was just like, dude, you've got to get out. Like I started getting psychosomatic issues. Your energy goes to zero when you're a state of dissonance because like your ego is like, stay, it's safe. Think how, think how much money you're making for your family. You're going to be managing director soon. Like you're going to be so successful and everyone's going to be very impressed with you. Right. And then there's your unconscious, you know, that heart guide that's like, you're dying, right? You're, you're, you're not following what you should be doing and you're wasting your life and you're running out of time. And that dissonance um, came to a head for me in like 2017. I left the industry without a plan because I had this exceptional confidence that because I was so highly educated and so successful that I would be fine. And uh, I was not at all fine. I, I fell through the floor um, and I spent, you know, three years trying to pull my life together and making every professional and personal mistake I think you can make which is why I feel I can talk to people about it now because I just managed my own career pivot so catastrophically. And I kept trying to over-determine my direction, which was like finance was, was nonsense. It doesn't have any societal benefit. You've got to go and be a social worker. So I did a semester at Fordham in social work. I tried to be a hospice worker. I tried to be a psychologist. I tried to be a Jungian analyst. I tried to be a recruiter for a while to help people change their jobs. And I just wasn't interested in any of it. And all of those doors slammed shut for me really badly until eventually I hit like a really, really, really serious rock bottom in the February of the pandemic, February of 20. And funny enough, gave up. And I think that that's a really interesting concept, kind of psychologically, the, the surrender and the letting go. And ended up getting a job back in finance, but we're still very interested in the weird mix of pretentious uh, philosophical and financial that I write about now. And I just wrote a piece and, you know, my current boss, Tom Pence read it and was like, we'll just hire you to come do this, explore these fields, explore these people, be a, a curiosity Sherpa for our clients. And, you know, the door opened where only there was a wall because I had the courage, but also kind of the freedom to, to just do what I wanted to do again. So I went through this whole kind of arc that was was really, really tough. And there was nothing heroic about it. It was mostly pitiful crying in the fetal position and not knowing how to support my family and just being in a state of a really terrible depression. But I see a lot of people that are stuck in similar places and I kind of want to share my story and help them with it. The closest I've ever been is when uh, my franchise failed miserably. Um, and that was that was probably the lowest point in my entire life and I would say if I if I blow up my portfolio, it'll be the second lowest. But I don't I don't think I'm at that that kind of risk. Um, but I guess going through that with a family would be, you know, at least I was young when I went through it. Um, going through it with a family would be really tough. I mean, it, it was right. Like I was I was in a state of total abstraction, like that I couldn't connect to anything or anyone. I couldn't. I, the the only emotion I could feel for at least two years was shame. 
I was un- incapable of finding of feeling anything anywhere. And when you have a you know a one year old boy, that's that's problematic. And I think there were a lot of interesting and crazy different reasons for that. But what's interesting subsequently is that could you hold him and feel love no. when you felt shame? Yeah, nothing. There was one moment where it broke through. And it was a bit like that moment when Andy Dufresne plays opera in the Shawshank Redemption. And you kind of get this momentary, momentary beauty. And I told my wife that night, I was like, I think I'm finally out of this. And I went back in for like another year. But it was just that, it was just that I finally felt something in my heart for the first time. I was like, oh, this kid's going to love me unconditionally. And then it went away. And it was Holy just, shit. it was, it was brutal. It was absolutely. It must have been so lonely. It must have been lonely for your wife too, by the way. How horrible for her. She's a saint. I mean, yeah, yeah. Any normal person would have divorced me. Um, well, because that's why I mean, you married her. I mean, the thing that I was told by the, the mental health system in New York is that um, I wasn't ever going to get better, right? They were like, I was dead-eyed, right? Like the eyes of a shark, right? There was no light in me anywhere. And everyone I met in sort of psychiatry and, you know, the, the medicalization of the system was like, oh, yeah, he's done. He's broken. Like, he's never going to get better. This doesn't get better in people. Um, and And so for her to stick around when I just couldn't, couldn't help the family because I just had a constant voice in my head, just droning constantly negative things. So I couldn't think proactively about anyone else's needs other than my own. It was a state of total, total isolation. But, you know, the thing that I would say is that the first thing, when I speak to people sort of of my age, up to sort of 50s and 60s who are stuck, the one thing that comes back is family. And there's a line from Carl Jung that is maybe the most terrifying and resonant line I've ever heard, which is, there's no greater burden a child can bear than the unlived life of the parent. And I look at a lot of people with four rooms in Connecticut. Jesus, right? that is profound. Dude, it's brutal. It's brutal. But we know it's true, right? Look yeah, around. for sure. That's we why I had my reaction. It. We know it just hits me like a sledgehammer every time I hear it or say it, right? And these guys are like, I can't. I can't downgrade my family to like a two bedroom apartment because I want to explore my creative outlet. And what I've said to people is that like, you're just thinking about you being unhappy in a smaller apartment. Right. And, and like having screwed <laughs> over your family. Right. Like the, I, 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 your I, kids I, would actually probably like you more. Right. You'd probably home. be a, around more. Oh, I had dinner with some uh, friend of mine the other night and he was, he was, I think notionally very successful, but in a bad spot. And his 10-year-old turned to him one day and said, Daddy, why don't you smile anymore? And he said that was it. That was a turning point in his life. And he just changed up, changed it up and had the courage to change it up. But it's like we think our family wants more from us from a material perspective than they do. And frankly, if your wife only wants the material things from you, you've married the wrong woman. And if, you're, and if your kids only want an extra bedroom, you've, 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 you've raised the wrong kids, right? Like if your kids aren't happy for you, as long as you don't go about it irresponsibly, I don't think it's material things that keep people trapped. To an extent, yes. I put a I put a poll out on Twitter that, you know, was was relatively modest, but I was like, people that hate your jobs, if I could cut your salary by 40%, but guarantee you would come alive inside, would you take that trade? And 70% said yes, right? It's not the money that holds people in, it's the uncertainty. It's that it takes about three years to do a career pivot in midlife. It's that when someone like me comes out and it's like, I've got a skill set in a particular area but I don't know where to go next. That getting lost is brutal. And I think what we need as a society is more people on the other side of the desert, right? Like Moses, 
I'm not comparing myself to Moses here, right? Nor do I know a lot about the Bible, but like Moses got the Israelites to go and spend like 40 years in the desert because he's like, there is a promised land on the other side. And I think for people who are stuck in professional situations, there aren't enough people that are like, all right, I went through this and now I'm thriving, right? You know, I make, I personally make 25% of the money I made when I was 28, right? I'm not financially successful, but I'm one of the happiest people I know now, right? And a lot of that is having been broken into a million different pieces by the transition phase. And I just think that if we can, if we can, if we can amplify any voices, it should be those voices rather than like the guys who have like grifted themselves to the top. Yeah, I agree with that, man. I, you know, it's funny, um, man, I don't know. I've got a lot of thoughts, uh, as you're talking, but one of the things that you said is you said, like, if, if your wife needs the material stuff, you married the wrong person. Um, you know, I said, to, I said to my wife, I was like, look, you know, we're building this house and, uh, we've been building it for a while and it's, um, objectively like her dream home and, and mine too. And I said like, you know, if the stock market gets that much worse, we may, it may not be prudent to hold it. It's not like, oh, we have to sell it, but we should probably sell it, uh, depending on the bid. And she just looked at me and she's like, you know, I'm fine with that. Right. And I was like, oh, that is so dope. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and like, we, we just bought something that's probably going to be a rental, but if we end up in that, like that's, it's a super nice life. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's a really nice house. And to have her just be like, I don't actually care about that shit. I I don't know. It was like freedom, but having that conversation and the buildup to that conversation felt horrible. Yeah. And I I think there's always so much tied into that, you know, the person, the persona that we have to adopt and the lack of tolerance for people who are notionally unsuccessful. And I think a lot of that is one of the worst parts of American culture, which is if you're unsuccessful, it's your fault. It's no one else's fault. It's your fault if you're unsuccessful. And I, don't, I just don't think that's true for a lot, of, a lot of people. And there is a survivorship bias and there is a lottery to it. And don't get me wrong, like hard work's like, like crucially important. But it, you don't, I just don't see people tweet about their failures very much. I don't see people tweet like, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. Can anyone help me find a new career path, right? And a lot of those people call me after these podcasts and like DM me and I try and work with as many of them as I can. But it's like, I think we need to be part of this whole like phase shift, I think is being louder about that transition because there's going to be a lot of people that want to transition and don't know how to do it. And the greatest tragedy is that it's guys of my age, you know, in their 40s who are just cast to one side. Uh, and, you know, the sales traders that end up selling life insurance because it's the only thing they can do. And they just gradually become less and less differentiated people until they're like human thumbs drinking themselves stupid every weekend, you know? Yeah. The other thing that when when you and I had talked about your bottom, I mean, I, I had uh, checked my dad into an institution. Well, I shouldn't say an institution. It was a hospital, but it was a, a wing of the hospital that some people had some serious problems. And, uh, you know, he went through a divorce uh, and he didn't sleep for a really long time and he was abusing caffeine and it put him in a manic state. And I have never experienced mania before. And to watch that up close was fucking crazy. Um, and the, one of the reasons that I am comfortable talking about it is that the outcome has been like he and I are as close as we've ever been. And his life is as happy as it's ever been. And, you know, it was a lot of, he had to do a lot of hard work to get through to the other side. But 
I, I don't think I would be open about it if it had a sad ending, right? Uh, maybe I would have a little bit more shame about it or whatever. But between that and what happened to my cousin-in-law, who, you know, I think, I think objectively what went on there is he, he didn't want to reach out to people for help. I mean, he reached out to Robin Hood. So A, they should have responded. But beyond that, uh, there was such shame in what he had thought he had done to his family that he didn't reach out to, to people that, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to have a podcast that highlights failure all the time. But one of my favorite things that people are are appear willing to do and continue to do, and I thank you for doing, is talking about the hard times. Because I think a lot of a lot of the interviews or whatever we see on Twitter or whatever, it's all like fucking peacocking bullshit of, you know, I, I have always shat roses. Of course I shit roses. Right. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not how a lot of life goes. And, um, funny, I was talking to it. Well, the William Green episode, what he said is, um, Charlie Munger, when, when William sent him the book, he said, do you have a, a thought? common thread of all these investors. And Charlie was like, uh, you know, it's amazing how many of them got divorced. Right. So it, it's like we, uh, we take this view and I think sometimes have uh, heroes in one part of life, but ignore the rest of the life that they gave up to have the part that uh, we all look up to. And I have, realize that if you have a hero, you have to accept their faults too, right? Like you can't just say, boy, I want to be this person. Um, because to be that person requires to accept the bad parts as well. So I don't know, long way of saying, uh, I appreciate what you're doing by sharing your story. And, and I hope that I can help people in some way by facilitating conversations like this and being honest. Yeah, you will. I mean, definitely will, right? It's, 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 it's the open hearted thing again, right? Like, People, a lot of people say to me now, like, you must be so much stronger from having gone through that. And I'm like, no, I'm much weaker, right? I cry all the time now. I'm much more emotional than I ever was when I'm English. So that's very, very difficult for me, right? Like, and I feel my love for my son with like a burning intensity. And I'm just much more engaged in the world, which means I feel negative things more and I feel positive things more. And it makes me, it makes me weaker. It makes me I mean, maybe weak is the wrong word, but it, it's sort of like people are like, well, like you, you'll be able to be anything now and sort of like this Dave Goggins way. And I'm like, no, I don't think that at all. And actually it's great. Like, and, uh, and I think that we sort of have this view that that challenges always need to lead to a very specific kind of resilience. And it hasn't done that for me. And actually that's cool because I feel more a part of the world than I did before. Yeah, yeah. I would say that you're probably, uh, it sounds to me like you're living a fuller life now on this side. Whether or not that's harder or weaker or whatever, I don't know, but um, it sounds fuller. Well, I mean, it's like to be, to bring, you know, business and investing back in, like the thing that the universality that I've noticed from everyone I've studied is a receptivity to outside information, right? That the ego doesn't overwhelm the outside information and Druck is like, or Druck or Tepper would be like the extreme examples of that, right? Where they're just super crazy, cognitively flexible, but you can't do that unless your heart's open, right? Because you just continuously impose your model on the world. So actually you need to overweight external information relative to your own opinion. And most people look at the world the opposite way in my experience. And that sounds quite simplistic, but I think you can look at it in quite a, a number of really interesting and complex ways.
Yeah, I think it's uh, that it reminds me of Jim O'Shaughnessy's concept of uh, the thinker and the prover. I know I'm not dumb, so when I say like I just assume I'm dumb, that's not what I actually mean, right? But like I, I know how many blind spots I have, and the older I get, the more I realize how many more I had than I thought I had. <laughs> so now yeah. I just assume they're everywhere. Right. Good. Yeah. I think I don't know. You know, I was flipping through your uh, your recent thing, 20, 21 useful ideas and one big one. Do you want to, like, what's the summary of that? Or do you think people should look at that? Like, I mean, everybody should read it, I think, and I'll drop the writing in the show notes. But what what would be your takeaway if you had to summarize it in a 60-second pitch? Oh, Jesus, dude. Um, <laughs> it's, like it, it's, like it, it's like a year's work. Um, Is that how long it took? Yeah, it's a, it it's beautiful. Practice. I think it's great. Oh, thank you. It's a listicle, so I, I feel like people like listicles. Um, but it's, it's it's every idea that I've ever found recurrent and meaningful. But it's all Arnold Vandenberg, basically, right? So like, all of these things are about how you weight unconsciously received information higher than conscious information. But basically, the, the the level of conscious awareness we have is designed to trick us to be confident in everything we know. And all we're constantly getting all this unconscious information that if we learn how to interpret it, operates at a much, much higher level of fidelity and is a much, much more effective guide for our lives. And you look at someone like Arnold, and I disagree with a lot of the more woo stuff that he talks about, right? But he's basically just spent his entire life harmonizing that balance. So William Green introduced him on his podcast a few weeks ago, where he's like, in 25 years, I've never found a better role model than Arnold. And I know nothing about Arnold's life other than what he's talked about in your podcast and his. Like, I don't know about his home life or any of that stuff. But, you know, Frederick and I talk all the time about, like, you just dig a couple of layers deep on these guys' personal lives and they're a mess, right? Or they've acted terribly. And we also think that you have to work, find a way of discerning and integrating the best of people without discarding the whole person because they've done or said something stupid. So you don't want to go too far. But the people that have seemed to manage this Taoist balance, their life goes way better than everyone else because they sort of match their character to what they're supposed to be doing. And I think that, well, I mean, I, I can't end a podcast without mentioning this, but um there's a dude called uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist who wrote a book called The Matter With Things, and I interviewed him for my work in December. I think it's the, certainly the best book I've ever read by a very long way. If it's true, it's one of the most important books written in the last couple of thousand years. And if it's not true, it's still the most effective metaphor uh, for cognition that I've ever found. Um, it is a true masterpiece. And basically, it explains what's gone wrong with our neurology and how it's affected culture and what a pivot back to the other side would look like, which is the thing that I've been exploring for the last year. Like I, I wrote something that uh, that I put out that I linked to in the, the ideas piece that's sort of a 3000 words on what it's about, which is a good start because it's a 1400 page book, but- I was gonna I mean, say, you're, it's, uh, it's even $40 on Kindle. Dude, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, it, it, this is why you talk about patient wives, right? Like I, cause I was interviewing him, I had to read it in a month or five weeks and it was three hours a day for five weeks. Um, but I realized after I went onto my iPhone screen time that I was still doing an hour of doom scrolling on Twitter a day. So I went from four hours, <laughs> four hours doom scrolling to one hour of doom scrolling. So I was like, oh, actually, was this as big a challenge as I thought it was? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like I would urge everyone to read it. It talks about this balance and rationality and intuition in a way that's got a level of sophistication that's dramatically higher than anything I've ever read. And Christ, I think he's actually got it right. I think he's. I think what he's saying is true. And if it is true, it's the biggest idea I've ever encountered. 
All right. Well, there you go. I think that's a good good place to leave people with some homework, and maybe you'll come back on someday, yeah, and yeah. we can uh, we can probe into it. I love it. Yeah, please. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a delight. Dude, thanks for saying yes. I, I really enjoy talking to you. It was fun hanging with you at Capital Camp. Uh, I We'll see if, uh, if, if the market doesn't crash and I can still afford airline tickets. I'd like to come up to New York. Oh, dude, I'd rather go down to Florida. Yeah, totally. Well, you should do that in the, in the winter. We, we got space uh, that we can put you up in. So feel free to come. Bring the fam. Thanks, man. I will. All right. Have a good one. 